Up next on Book TV's Afterwards, the Federalists Molly Hemingway and Judicial Crisis Network's Carrie Severino examine the confirmation of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh and the future of the court. They're interviewed by Los Angeles Times Supreme Court correspondent David Savage. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. Well, last summer, Washington saw a particularly fierce political fight over President Trump's nomination of Judge Brett Kavanaugh to succeed Justice Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court. It was not always an edifying experience. It was a mean and ugly fight at times. We know how it turned out. Judge Kavanaugh, now Justice Kavanaugh, was narrowly confirmed uh, on a largely party-line vote. Um, But it was a memorable fight. So um, why did uh, you two choose to retell this story in uh, book-length form? Carrie and I were both involved in the Kavanaugh confirmation battle. She, uh, working on the on the confirmation, I covering it as a journalist, we knew that we had uh, a good story here. We knew that we had good access, um, and we wanted to lay it down, get the record down. And so we interviewed more than 100 people, including the president and various other people at the White House, several Supreme Court justices, people in the Senate, and uh, we are so glad we did because this was something that gripped the nation last year. And when you're in the chaos of it, in the moment, um, sometimes it's worth reflecting on after the dust has settled about lessons to learn from it, what were some of the things that happened behind the scenes, and we're really glad that we got to do it. Absolutely. I think for me in particular, having clerked for Justice Thomas, I saw a real replay of many of the events from the types of attacks that were even going on before the uh, confirmation got crazy, to the obviously to the allegations that followed a very similar pattern. And I knew that the next phase wasn't uh, one where just the, the losing side goes home and says, well, you know, we couldn't keep him off the court. What we've seen since Thomas's confirmation is that the nation has gone from, at the time, the people who watched it, who were living it in real time, said two to one. They believed Thomas over Hill. And that's men, women, black, white. There's been a, a constant drumbeat ever since then of trying to rewrite that narrative and reimagine that story. And so I thought it, was, it would be really important to make sure the facts were out there to help get ahead of the revisionist history here so that we could learn from and, and probably learn on both sides from, from the ugliness of this battle. I don't think the American people want to see this level of um, viciousness and vitriol in future confirmations, and, and I know we certainly don't. And I think putting it in context helps people. It was a horrific thing for people to go through on all sides, and seeing how it is part of the confirmation process that we've seen and being able to go through some of that history going back hundreds <clears throat> of years, but more particularly in recent decades, I think is helpful. So what are the... Um you did talk to a lot of people. There's a lot of reporting in this book. What uh, would somebody who sort of followed the news but didn't delve into it, what would you learn, what did you learn that was sort of new in recounting this uh, story? Yeah, so many things. It's hard, it's hard to even, you know, pick out just a few. One of the inter- exciting things to learn was really to get to see some of the human side of the way that the uh, the Kavanaugh family was dealing with the process. So it's everything from the kind of fun and exciting things of what were they thinking in the lead-up to the nomination. There's some really fun stories of how both he had to kind of try to sneak into the White House and be, and be really careful that he didn't even let his own 
wife or family know after the president had told him he was going to get the nomination um, and kind of kept that secret as long as possible, how Ashley Kavanaugh and her girls had to escape their house. There was already a media stakeout in front, and they and they knew, you know, people were at Amy Coney Barrett's house, too. We had remember the slow-motion uh, chase with Thomas Hardiman a few year, <laughs> years before where they were... So people knew they'd be followed. So they, they felt they just needed to whatever the result was before they even knew he'd be nominated. We're just going to leave the House, and they, they managed to sneak out the backyard through a back route so the media wouldn't be able to tell if they were there or not. So it, it's fun stories like that, but then also seeing how, how these kind of allegations affected them in real life. How do you go through, you know, having to just live in this same community where really a lot of the families involved and the people who they well went to school with are still there, and it's really a local story as well as a national one and you've got you know the girls are going to school and and working through that there was a lot of support we saw from their friends and on both sides of the aisle and neighbors you know ashley kavanaugh is a a a town manager in chevy chase so as this is all going you know right before her husband is nominated she's hosting a july 4th party and then right in the middle of the, the heat of these allegations she is hosting a neighborhood barbecue at their house i mean it's it's so amazing to think what this must have meant for the people as they were going through. And you see the strength um, of character that it took to survive this level of attack and opposition. Yes, you do do tell a story of sort of perseverance and survival and really tough. No one would want to be in the position, I think, of sometimes the justices, because if you, uh, you know, in effect, like your whole life is and your whole career is right before the world and, and you're under attack during that period, the confirmation process is, is, has become a very ugly situation, and it seems like all the justices view it that way. Republicans and Democrats view it that way. Did you come away with any thoughts about what could be? This was a really bad process. Do you have any thoughts about how the confirmation process could be made different or better? Yes. So one of the things that was interesting was speaking with, with uh, various Supreme Court justices <clears throat> and whether they... You know, nobody had a confirmation process like this, maybe, or a few people did. Justice Thomas, perhaps. <laughs> but, but whether, you know, you had, they had one that you thought was relatively mild or, or something more serious, they all loathe the confirmation process. Mm-hmm. And I think whether these people are appointed by uh, Democrats or Republicans, these are judges who have, care- these are now justices who have cared about their reputation, who have cared about how they've lived their lives. And to have their integrity questioned by people um, by senators who sometimes don't show that same integrity mm-hmm. is galling for a lot of these people. But we look at, you know, people say, okay, the senators were bad. The Senate, the Senate process broke down. And there is truth in that. Um, there was, after the Thomas hearings, a procedure set in place precisely to avoid things like mm-hmm. this, uh, an actual way that if you have an allegation to make against a presidential nominee, it can be handled discreetly. And for reasons that are not entirely clear, Senator Dianne Feinstein circumvented that process and went the route she chose to go. So there are process breakdowns, or the way the first round of hearings went with um, with outbursts from various senators. And I understand people being upset about that. Um, there is frustration at how the media handled some of these allegations and whether they showed journalistic integrity in how they reported on the story. But it's also a case of the court itself, which is, um, as the court has has become more political in its decision making, uh, whether, you know, when it makes when it makes law rather than interpreting the law as it is written, that creates a very political situation. And it's not altogether surprising that it becomes, that the process itself becomes more political. So there is some role for the court itself to tamp down some of these, um, some of 
these actions just by behaving in a less political fashion. Do you like the old, um, what used to be the standard that everybody would say is, if the president makes a, a nomination and that nominee is well qualified, the Senate should basically confirm that nominee. That was 30, 35 years ago. That was sort of always said to be the standard. Do you think that should be the standard now? That is, Judge Brett Kavanaugh, by every standard, was well qualified um, for the job. But most of the Democrats were not going to vote to confirm him. And if you ask them, they'd say, oh, well, so was Merritt Garland. And he wasn't uh, confirmed. So anyway, what's your view? Do you think it should be the old standard or is it is it should it sort of depends on the political makeup of the Senate? The old standard has actually been gone for a very long time. Mm -hmm. I mean, by any realistic standards, Judge Robert Bork was absolutely <clears throat> and unquestionably qualified for the job. And we're talking in the 80s. So that standard has, has been abandoned for a long time. Um, and it was abandoned first by the Democrats. And we kind of went back, you know, to when we, and we tell some of this story in Justice on Trial. It, it, I think it, it, there were many times when Republicans were hoping that they could kind of return to that. You saw Clinton's nominees had, Breyer and Ginsburg had almost unanimous and almost unanimous kind of confirmations. In, and I think it is, it, it, what we have seen is a, it's taken a while for Republicans to realize that that standard hasn't been followed. And actually, you saw a little of this frustration coming from Lindsey Graham, who is one of the people who absolutely ascribes to that, that he approach. He was the only one. And right. the but, Obama. but recall his, his um, outburst at the final confirmation where he said, tell Justice Kagan and Sotomayor hello, because I voted for them. Mm -hmm. And you are, you are not following that standard. And I think, I think he's frustrated because he would like that to be the standard. That simply isn't the standard that's being followed. I think there should be a, that qualifications are clearly important, but it is, there's, there's an advice and consent role the Senate has to play, and that looking at judicial philosophy is part of that. You take an oath as a senator to uphold the Constitution, so it's, it's incumbent on senators to make sure that someone who's going to be in a role of a justice of the Supreme Court is someone who will uphold the Constitution. And I think that clearly means someone who's going to look at the text of the Constitution as it is written and not believe that they have a... Um, not entirely blank slate, but a lot, but a, a great degree degree of leeway to um, play with the Constitution as it is, because that that circumvents our constitutional process. There's an amendment process for that. It is not called. It's not amended by five votes of the justices on the Supreme Court. So I think that's something that's that is fair game to debate. I think the politics of personal destruction is where it becomes a real problem that absolutely is off the table. And I'm I'm very proud that. For example, during the, the uh, Merrick Garland confirmation, that that is absolutely up. We can talk about his record. We can talk about whether the Senate wants to proceed to a vote, and that's a way that two thirds of the Senate of the Supreme Court nominees that haven't been confirmed simply it's because they haven't had a vote. So it's that's totally a, a regular way of of not having someone confirmed. But having an attacks like we saw with the Kavanaugh confirmation, having the hysteria um, and and the again smears. That is something that I think should be taken off the table for both sides. And we have a story in our book of Merrick Garland actually being worried that when he was nominated that he would be subject to some of these personal character attacks. And people are definitely upset with how his nomination was handled or rather how it wasn't considered by the Senate. But, the, but he didn't receive personal attacks of that nature. And he was even told by friends, I actually don't think you have to worry about that at all. They're not going to do that. 
There are consequences for how you fight. It, it's understandable that these are hard-fought battles. There are consequences for how you fight. And Republicans did face some consequences, some good, some bad, for how they fought the Merrick Garland situation. And also, I would say, by and large, with the Gorsuch nomination, there was a little bit of character assassination, but mostly what Democrats tried to do was filibuster him. That didn't go well for them. They ended up losing the f- filibuster for, for Supreme Court justices, but it was still within the bounds of... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Senate norms. And right. Yeah. So you would say keep the personal attacks out of these uh, fights. But basically, isn't aren't we in a situation now where <clears throat> it's almost entirely uh, political? That is, the president makes a nomination, and he, it's always been a he, has uh, majority control in the Senate. The nomination will be confirmed. If not, we're now in a situation where it's, it's I, I'm not sure that a new... Supreme Court nominee can be confirmed if the other party controls the Senate. In other words, if the if President Trump were reelected, and the, the, so we're going to talk hypotheticals here. President Trump is reelected, and the Democrats have control of the Senate. My guess is they would not confirm another Trump nominee. Looking at the people on his list, I think that's true. I think it's an interesting kind of fun fact on the court now. There is only one member who has been confirmed by a Senate of the opposing party, Clarence Thomas. And so it's really, that that actually will show you a little bit of the change in North, right, because right. even with a level of controversy there, yes, he still right. had Democrats who voted for him and Republicans who voted against. But um, I think the challenge is, what you know? how do we get past that? And, and Justice Scalia, and we quote him in Justice on Trial, we talked about it, and he said, if judges are acting like politicians, Molly alluded to this, then it makes sense to have this as a political thing. There, the, if, if the nation's top policy issues are being decided by the Supreme Court, how do we expect them not to be treated this way? This is why I actually think originalism and textualism is, would be a very healthy approach for, I think, judges across the board should take, because then what you're doing is looking at the text of the law, and that's a law as passed by Democrats, as passed by Republicans. It doesn't matter the content of the law, and you'll, you will, will often have justices who who embrace originalism, who, who will not like the result of maybe the law they're, they're enforcing, but actually feel like they they're, uh, have to hew closely to the text. That puts it back in Congress. Those are our elected representatives. That's where the, the Constitution places it. And then we all know it's going to be sausage, but the politics has to happen somewhere. It should happen in that political process. The judges are supposed to be insulated from that. They have a political check at the front end, but then they're on for life tenure. And that's because there's the idea that what they're doing is not politics, it's law. So let's keep the judges doing that. And we don't have to fight as much about what their what you know their personal beliefs are, are on all these controversial issues. That shouldn't be relevant. It should be, are you following the law closely? And then, you know what, hmm. let Congress pass the laws that you want, and then you'll get the kind of law you want in the country. I like that a lot in theory. Uh, <laughs> it's... it's uh, matter of great controversy and how it plays out. You know, Congress passed the Obamacare Act, and there was a move to overturn it in the courts. Uh, big fight. Uh, the Voting Rights Act, the extension was almost passed unanimously in Congress in 2006, and then essentially overturned by the Supreme Court on a 5-4 to four vote. There is, uh, th- this is because there's, the Constitution is one of the laws. The supreme law of the land, they still have to include as well, of course. Mm-hmm. But in general, in ter- if you're just talking about interpreting a statute, you have to you have to hew closely to the text of the statute. That's why I would you know, maybe take issue with overturning Obamacare by rewriting the statute. You don't get to, or, or maintaining it by rewriting the statute. You don't get to rewrite the words of the law, even if it means rewriting the words so you can avoid 
a constitutional problem. But you know, that's a you're talking a about different the second debate. Case. I'm, I'm, well, I'm, well, the second case was almost more an explicit um, yeah. rewriting of the statute. But I think the, I think reinterpreting a, ta a uh, penalty as a tax is a similar similarly doing justice to the statute. But we we digress from uh, yes. from Kavanaugh. So. Well, let's talk about the mystery woman, uh, Christine Blasey Ford. Uh, there were rumors about her in the middle of the hearings, I believe, and uh, apparently, as you said, Diane Feinstein's office had gotten this complaint. At some point, her name came out, and there was a long procedure about would she or would she not testify. She came and testified. I think a lot of people who watched it on television said, my goodness, she's got a very vivid memory of a painful experience in high school. She's about 15, she says. Brett Kavanaugh was then about 17. She says she was sort of grabbed or attacked in this room and roughed up or something, and it lasted five or ten minutes. But to this day, she seemed to have a particularly vivid memory of it. And Judge Kavanaugh said it never happened. Uh, he didn't know this. He knew, I think, heard of her name somewhere, but didn't know her. Uh, none of the other people who were in the room had any confirmation of it. But what do you make of uh, Christine Blasey Ford, and how do you understand what she said, and what do you believe about her testimony? Right. Well, this was actually one of the interesting things to report on, because it's not such a cut-and-dry or black-and-white type of story. I would take issue with this idea that she had a vivid memory. I mean, partly yes, partly uh, one of the things that was frustrating for people who were trying to evaluate the veracity of the memory was how there were no specifics to go along with it, whether it was when it happened, where it happened, who was involved with when it happened. Sometimes the details were changing. Sometimes the details just weren't there. But to go back to the nomination process, one of the things we learned that we thought was interesting was about how once you get on the shortlist uh, to be a Supreme Court nominee, you go through what's called an SDR, an interview where you are uh, in interrogated about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And so it has been built into the process since the Ginsburg nomination when he got in trouble for smoking marijuana with his... Oh, yeah, yeah. sorry. <laughs> not, not Ruth. Um, when he got in trouble for smoking marijuana with some of his graduate students, I believe. Um, and so this is something that's built into the process right away because people know that if something comes out, it could right. cause problems. Right. So that interview was gone through. They had a pretty good idea of who they were dealing with. They always kind of, the White House team always understood that something might come out. And uh, one of the things that made them believe uh, now Justice Kavanaugh when he, when he flat out denied the allegation was what, how they had seen him be throughout the process. So when they're going through moots or when they saw him in that first round of hearings, he is so um, cautious about how to answer questions so that, he does, so that he avoids a perjury trap. So if someone is trying to suggest something, he's very careful in how he responds. And when this allegation comes out, he just flat out denies it. And it gave the White House team confidence that this was not a guy who was trying to avoid perjury. It's a federal judge who had sat on the bench for 12 years. He was firm, could not have been firmer in that denial. So we go through what the allegation is and also what evidence is there in support of it and what evidence um, Brett Kavanaugh has to support his claims. And that was a very interesting part of the process. We spoke with a, quite a few people who know and like Christine Blasey Ford, who knew her from childhood. And, um, and it was just a complicated picture. It was, yes, she had no evidence to support her allegations, but people thought she was nice. They definitely had memories of her in high school, of her being you know, a party girl, 
um, which I don't think came out in the media coverage of that. But it was not like, um, you know, such a, these are real people with real lives, whether it is Christine Blasey Ford or Brett Kavanaugh, who she accused. Well, how did her friends interpret the, her testimony? That she was telling a true story she remembered, or she, she made this up, or what, what, what was, uh, what do people think about, um, in a sense, why would you come and go on national television and tell some story like this? It, uh, it's sort of, from an outsider's point of view, you'd think, well, why, why would she do that? I, that's, I think that's a question a lot of people asked and, and continue to ask. There were a lot of things that were um, didn't seem to line up about several of the stories. I mean, she did say early on she didn't want to come public. And I, we know that, that is, right. uh, there are parallels with the Anita Hill allegations where she was told initially, we can get him to scuttle this, them to scuttle yeah. this nomination. You will never have to come public. Who would be delighted to go on national television to tell well, a story I mean, like this? I, 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 think, I, I think no one plans it. However... It also seems a little inconsistent that she said she didn't want to go on television, but then the first call she made was to the Washington Post. So she says she wants to keep, she's simultaneously saying, I want to keep this completely under wraps, but also is going to the press. And in fact, when they didn't respond to her initial calls to the tip line, she says, well, I can always go to the Times with this. And that's how she got, got a little bit of a response. So, you know, again, we, it's, it's, we don't know what's going on specifically in her heart of hearts, but mm. we try to put together the evidence that we have here. And mm. we definitely, we know that her lawyers, for example, initially were saying she wants a public hearing. And then, so, okay, then Senate Judiciary Committee is going to give her a hearing, and then they backed off and they said, actually, under these circumstances, let's move it later and later. So there's, it's a very complicated picture that we have of, of one story that, you know, that this is, we're trying to keep this quiet, but actually there's a very large pu- public relations effort around it. So whether that's her intent or whether that some of the people around her, whether it's the Democrats, whether it's her lawyers, whether it's even her friends, um, that we, you know, there's definitely a, an, if, an effort pushing this forward into the limelight right. and, and, and organizing a campaign. People ask us about her veracity or motivation, and I don't think we can speak to the motivation, but it is also interesting how people kind of forget some of what happened during that second round of testimony, where Rachel Mitchell, who's the prosecutor who's brought in to question... Uh, Blasey Ford goes through a series of questions. Rachel Mitchell, I found to be one of the more fascinating characters that we explore in this book. She is someone who has a very good reputation for interviewing victims of sex crimes in order to prosecute uh, perpetrators of sex crimes. So she is very good at what she does. She is a nationwide expert. And she even tells, when she's interviewing for the position, she tells the Senate Judiciary Republicans, mm-hmm. if you're looking for a bulldog, that's not me. Like, I, I have a career to go back to. I am very conscious of the need to protect uh, sexual assault victims. And so she comes in and is exactly that way and starts going through the questioning. We were told leading up to the second, um, the second the reopening of the hearings that Christine Blasey Ford could not make it to D.C. because she was terrified of flying. That was a message that was conveyed through her attorneys. And so uh, Rachel Mitchell starts asking her about it and just gently pursues whether that is a true statement or not. How did you get here? She flew. How did you get here earlier this summer when you were out visiting your family? She flew. Do you fly? Yes, regularly. Um, She explores whether she has flown to Australia, and she says, oh, no, that would be very much too difficult for me. Then it turns out that on her resume, she lists that one of her interests is surf travel, that she flies all over the Pacific, island hopping, not something that matches with the claims we were told, that she was so terrified of flying that they had to delay the hearing, you know, for days and days. So um, just kind of laying out these 
pieces of information. I think it is important you say, why would, why would someone not tell something that's true? It's also true that sometimes people believe themselves to be telling the truth or have a vivid memory, as you put it, that is not necessarily reliable. And we speak with memory experts who said that one of the problems they had with her testimony was when she said that something was indelible in the hippocampus. And these memory experts say literally nothing about memory is indelible and it can be manipulated. So it's important, again, for journalists and those who are outside the process to be critical and uh, not just lean into a narrative without checking some of the facts that are underlying it. But so you do suggest at one point that this could be one of these recovered memory situations, perhaps, where somebody has a strong memory now, but they didn't talk about this 30 years ago, and now it's a strong memory, and you're not clear that it's necessarily a... I remember that whole thing in the 1980s where, you know, people would talk about uh, uh, having their children being um, being molested in in uh, daycare or whatever. Satanic. Yes, and it became pretty clear that these were sort of manufactured memories. They sort of were created memories. I don't know whether you were suggesting this could be that or, or what. Well, there's, I mean, there's, there's a, a specific category of recovered memories where someone has no memory of something right, and then claims right. to have kind of developed one in therapy. It's not clear that she's claiming that. What we know is that she doesn't tell anyone until therapy. But this is one of the things, and Rachel Mitchell brought this out, it was... They, on one side, they were using these therapist notes as evidence. And as a lawyer, if, you're, if you were using this as evidence, you, you would expect that a court, if it, was a, if it was a legal situation, the court would be able to then examine them. They wanted to both simultaneously use those as corroboration of her statement, but refused to produce them. And it is very significant. This is what the experts we spoke to talked to, how that, that therapy went, because there are known therapeutic techniques that can suggest memories or can... Um, manipulate the contents of those memories. So you could attach the wrong person to a traumatic event. And this happens, this can happen through therapy, this can happen just through regular um, discussions with people. It ha- we've, it's been known to happen through police interrogation and, and, and picking people up out of lineups. So we have to be very careful and we don't know enough facts about it uh, because those records weren't released and because some of the other surrounding information wasn't given to even be able to assess the validity of that. And this is why it's so important, and, and you know, Rachel Mitchell, working with, with people in these situations so often felt like she had to go back and do what had never been done, unfortunately, until this process, which is a more forensic interview where you try to just get the facts out. That wasn't ever really done, and it's a very important step in any investigative process to know whether there's enough evidence to move forward with. What she ended up concluding, in her professional opinion, was not only is this enough ev- not enough evidence to actually win a case at trial, which would be beyond a reasonable doubt in a criminal case, this isn't actually enough evidence to get a search warrant. This is a, it, it, was, it was very uncorroborated, um, it, her testimony. And that was something that was very uh, compelling and significant, particularly to some of the undecided senators. So that was testimony that she gave initially to, after the hearings, she presented to a group of Republican senators that night. They were the ones who had um, had brought her on to do that. And she told that this group of senators all in kind of laid out systematically her her the, what she had uncovered in terms of the inconsistencies and at the end received a standing ovation. So then she stayed on two more days actually to write up a report, which then later was published by the Senate Judiciary Committee, just taking everyone through the allegations, through how they had changed over time. And there were some things, you know, some people were concerned, for example, about the delay before disclosure. She said that's not an issue. This is very typical uh, that you might have a delay before disclosure. But there were other things that did raise red flags for her. So... 
was it only disclosed after his name had already been in the news? So, so again, you might be concerned about memory being tampered with. And were there changes in the way she presented the story? So that was a very interesting piece of, of, um, of uh, analysis that happened that a lot of people didn't see maybe at the time but is now out there in public and we learned was very persuasive to some of the undecided senators who were really the key uh, votes in this process. And so you, the point you were making is that she said a number of things that... Um, that ca- would cause a senator to question her credibility because some of the thing about the, all the business about flying and whatnot, it didn't seem like she was, what, really entirely honest with... Uh... Well, when you make an allegation and you're trying to lay out support for it, she didn't have the type of things that you might expect from some similar stories, such as location or um, you know how she got somewhere or how she mm-hmm. left. So they were looking for other ways to determine credibility or veracity. And we did learn a lot about how um, Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, from the moment the allegation is made, they take it extremely seriously. Mm-hmm. Some people think you shouldn't be able to get a you know, nationally televised hearing simply for making an allegation. But some people on the Senate Judiciary Committee thought, absolutely, you should. We need to hear from this person. The, the Republicans, yeah. yes. And so they, uh, they really strongly wanted to hear from her and hear what her story was. Um, and everything was handled through attorneys. So it's hard to know, were these attorneys telling stories that were at odds with reality? Um, with the flying example, that's an issue where it was both the attorneys and Christine Blasey Ford who made claims about flying that didn't seem to match up with the record. But there were other issues as well. Mm-hmm. For instance, she said in her testimony that the um, that the allegation was revealed to her husband in part as uh, in part as they're going through therapy because she wanted a second door added to her house because she has such fear as a result of this incident that happened. And um, one of the things that came out after the hearing was that the second door there was a second door added to the house. It was added as part of a renovation for a unit that could be rented out, um, and that. That also made people wonder, well, is her story the real reason or not? Other people wrote into the Senate Judiciary Committee that they had known her for decades and had never known her to have a need for a second door. So uh, she didn't have a lot to work with. And then what she did work with was not necessarily compelling for people. Um, And again, these are delicate issues. And uh, dealing with sexual assault is something where different people will respond differently to it. It's also true that when you make an allegation, you need to have evidence in support of that. And that just, as they waited for it to come in, it just didn't come in and it didn't seem to meet anywhere near the standard to not just not have this person on the on the Supreme Court, but to basically forever tar him in the minds of the country as a, as a sexual abuser. And it's it's frustrating because mm-hmm. I mean, we've talked to the, 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 the difficulty it would have been for her to, to testify, obviously incredibly difficult for him and his family to go through this process. And... The frustrating thing is there is a system for doing, dealing with these things and taking them seriously so you don't just ignore any allegations against a nominee, but have a way of doing that to protect all the parties. And it was, it was developed specifically because of what happened with yeah. Anita Hill and, and Clarence yeah. Thomas. Yeah. So there is a, a process to give it. And I know Senator Feinstein said she didn't reveal this because of the request for confidentiality, but that's a confidential system. It is put in the FBI background file. Again, very, you know, honored by the White House, honored by the Senate. Um, and so why that wasn't followed, I think that that went against the interests of every single person involved. The only the only benefit from that, I guess, is that for those who would have liked to see a media circus and a national mm. um, 
kind of fiasco created about not things. in the interest of no, sex it, crimes victims. Right, and, and it, it, it hinders the, the investigation process as well, because you, even when the FBI was later back doing its investigation process, the ideal way of doing that would be to actually be able to talk to these people separately before they've all read about it in the papers. Then you can't, don't have to worry, is, has the, have the witnesses all been tainted by what they've already read? That wasn't done, and it, it made it much harder to get to the bottom of what was going on here, and that was, that was a real shame. You know, one of the really uh, strong points, uh, I think, on Judge Kavanaugh's side that you and others have mentioned is that there were something like 40 or 50 uh, young women who were, uh, they were young women when he was a young a guy in high school, who signed uh, letters uh, sort of on his behalf saying, I knew Brett Kavanaugh in high school, and I never saw any sign that Brett Kavanaugh would do something like that. I went to high school like you, you guys went to high school, and I would think that, you know, you would sort of assume if somebody was sort of a bad actor around uh, women or a bad actor in some other ways, at least some of the high school friends would say, oh, yeah, I remember so-and-so was a little bit... Uh, mm-hmm. And and isn't that your sense is that, that it was quite, um, I think, a strong card on his side was that a lot of people who knew him in high school, women who knew him in high school, came forward to speak up for him. Right. We looked at that. There were actual efforts by high school friends to get out into the public record that they felt this way about him. We spoke with one individual who said that there were maybe five men in her whole life who she would come out and defend their integrity and honor, and maybe only one, <laughs> and that he was he was one of those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people who knew him seemed to speak all in the same way about him, the people who knew him well. You also saw, though, people who were... Um, alumni of Holton Arms, which was the school that Christine Blasey Ford went to, uh, signing a letter that got a ton of media attention, even though it didn't mention that the people who were signing this letter in support of Christine Blasey Ford may or may not have even been at the school at the same time with her Mm. by a matter of decades. Um, This was one of the things that was helpful to him throughout the process. He actually addresses this in his final, in his testimony at, at the reopened hearing, how much friends have meant to him and how those carefully cultivated friendships that he developed from a young, from a young age um, had, had been meaningful to him. I would say just mm-hmm. as an observer writing about it, it would have been, I think, an entirely different situation had several women from his high school years come forward and say, oh, yeah, that's that sort of comports with what I saw of Brett Kavanaugh during that period. I think it would have undercut him quite a bit, yeah, but the it, reverse was true. They said there were guys who they would have been like, yep, okay, I could see that, but that he certainly wasn't one of them. And it was really interesting, there were women who had dated him in this group who also said he was incredibly respectful. There was one, and this was this was from college, but she said, I remember I, I was we were, when we were dating and I was in his room and had to change for something, he turned his back um, to give me the privacy, and she thought that really spoke to his, you know, he, he was a real gentleman with her. So I think it was it was very telling to see the, the women close to him stand up. Am I correct in saying the sort of low point for Brett Kavanaugh and Ashley and his family was the, I guess, the morning that Christine Blasey Ford testified and came across very well on television, and then it was his turn. Uh, Don't you, you quoted and cited a number of people, senators and whatever, who thought, oh, this is, uh, this is not good, that she's, uh, comes across as a very compelling witness. So I don't actually think that was the low point for Justice Kavanaugh. I think for him, he was, from the moment that first allegation comes out, 
he is desperate to clear his name and be able to defend his character and reputation. So that day is actually finally getting to the point. Um, the low point for him was when the allegations came out, you mean? Not just even the allegations. I would say that it's midway through the process. So the allegation comes out. It's obviously a huge shock. And I, actually, I think uh, we learned in our reporting that mm-hmm. that was a very difficult day, difficult to um, to have that have that allegation made, difficult to convey it to other people, difficult to be trying to convince other people of your innocence. That was rough. But then, if you recall, you know, there are these many days intervening between that first allegation and the eventual reopened testimony where other allegations are coming out. And they are absurd allegations in some case. You know, serial gang rape cartel leader. Increasingly boats. absurd. Yeah. And, um, and so that, in one way, I think the, the team that was working to advance the nomination found that to be helpful and that everyone could see that this wasn't just, um, you know, this wasn't this wasn't necessarily like a very serious thing that had to be dealt with seriously so much as an absurd situation that needed to be dealt with decisively. But there was always concern that the senators would lose their confidence. And that concern was legitimate. We did definitely talk to people who told us that Republican senators were not necessarily stalwarts throughout this process. And that day of these reopened hearings, Christine Blasey Ford gives her testimony. Many people in the media found it compelling, maybe more than people in their homes at, at watching from home. But one Republican senator on the Judiciary Committee goes to Senator Susan Collins and says, how about we go over to the White House and tell them to drop this nomination? And she says that she would like, that she, believing in due process, would like to hear from Judge Kavanaugh before she makes her decision. Um, but that shows you how, you know, this was a very narrow uh, voting situation and mm. people who you might even expect to have been uh, not of any worry to the Trump team turned out not to necessarily be as steadfast as, as they might have mm. hoped. And you tell the story at this point that there was a little bit of discussion with the White House counsel about are you a Bush nominee or a Trump nominee that he was very close to George W. Bush, worked for him. George W. Bush put him on the appeals court, but he's now a Donald Trump So what's that about? What does that mean? Yeah, it was an interesting dynamic that we learned. And we we, we were hearing as we were interviewing people involved that people would talk about, well, this wasn't some idea the Bushies had. I'm talking about people who were... First of all, this was difficult because sometimes the people telling us this were themselves Bushies, like people who had worked worked in the Bush Bush administration. administration. Yeah, so sometimes we're scratching our head going... (laughs) Who are the Bushies? Like it's, we, we, you know, well, is it this person? No, but they they were really closely associated with Bush. Finally, we realized they were really talking more about an attitude, not so much about a specific person. Sometimes, and it was really, you know, there, and even at that final moment, as he's going into his testimony, there were some people who were saying, "Well, you need to just be a little more, you know, recognize where she's coming from, give her it's a lot of credit for it was hard to come forward, and and just." talk about playing up sympathy and, and a, more of a softer approach. And then you had White House counsel Don McGahn, who there's, there's a really amazing um, story in there about they, were, they had loved sports analogies, and there was a movie they both loved called Miracle. It was about um, the miracle on ice, oh, yeah. 1980 Winter Olympics. And uh, Judge Kavanaugh loved this line where one of the players steps up and says, I, I play for the United States of America. And that's really kind of his, he just is a very patriotic um, person. But Don McGahn said, no, no, actually what we have right here is this moment where the coach comes in the locker room. They are not have not been playing well, and he's trying to get them fired up to go out there and actually do their best. And he's knocking over a table with the Gatorade on it and really firing them up. And he says, that's this moment. And you, you are not a Bush nominee. You are Trump nominee, and Trump fights. And it's interesting because in some ways I, we thought it kind of freed him. We were trying to figure out 
and talking to all these people. Who was the, and we saw a, a kind of a very different just Judge Kavanaugh on Martha McCallum earlier that week when he had an interview, right. had right. much more the bushy approach, right? Mm-hmm. And then on, and on Thursday when he really came out strong, and it was fascinating to learn that, in fact, that was the person he really had been early on. They were doing moots and practicing and just said, oh, wow. He's, I mean, they, you have to practice answering some of these really intense questions, but he was doing so well from day one. They, they actually had very few moots following up because they didn't want him to start sounding over-rehearsed, which I think some people felt did end up happening <laughs> despite their best efforts. But he was finally freed to give vent to that frustration that one feels, you know, going, I have, I have lived my whole life in the public eye. I have been so careful to be respectful and, and you know, encouraging of young women. A lot of people have talked about how great he was you know, hiring women law clerks and just the women in his life talking about how respectful he was. And how are you're, you are calling me a sexual assailant? You're calling me a rapist? This is horrible. So he, he really let that passion show. And I think that was very powerful for the American people to see. Do you think it... Um might have made the difference that as he came out fighting to sort of fight for his honor and fight for his, his good name. Do you think, um, because there were people on the, the left afterwards that said, oh, he was, um, he was so uh, uh, emotional and angry that it may have undercut his, um, his uh, uh, I don't know, reputation as a judge, a calm judge. But I take it a lot of people thought that's what he, that really made the difference, that that sort of shored up his support and, and assured his confirmation. Right. We do look at that issue of temperament because leading up into this reopened hearings, everything's being talked about sexual assault. He does such a good job refuting that that people then move to a different talking point, which is that his temperament is in question. But it's absolutely true that he came out, as you know, we're just talking about it, he came out fighting, and it wasn't really the testimony necessarily <laughs> even, but the subsequent questioning from senators where he starts just being very aggressive with them. Uh, that I think brought out that talking point, and he ends up having to address it by writing an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, which is something on, of the many things that happened in this confirmation battle that hadn't happened before. That was something mm-hmm. that we hadn't seen before. Uh, there were ways in which his behavior in both rounds of testimony were the same. In the first round of testimony, he wanted to be um, eager and open to any question. Sometimes people respond to this by trying to say as little as possible about their judicial philosophy. Uh, he takes a very different approach. He is, he is giving people as much of an answer as he can and being eager to respond to it. So I think that carried through with the second round of hearings. But when they start, uh, when some Democratic senators start going after him about lines in his yearbook um, and things that he finds to be absurd, he starts punching back. Uh, we write about how when he does it to Amy Klobuchar, Senator Amy Klobuchar, that was uh, a bridge too far for many people, and he ends up coming right back out of a break after that to apologize to her. So the temperament is an issue. Um, it has to be dealt with following that. But it is interesting to reflect after a full term on the court. Uh, this is a now justice who had a reputation for 12 years as having an excellent temperament. The American Bar Association has said as much mm-hmm. when they when they recommended him and after a full term on the court, it seems that uh, when he's not having to defend himself against allegations that he is a serial gang rapist and having to deal with the effect of that and his reputation and his young daughters, he is the Brett Kavanaugh that people were familiar with. Yeah, it's a little bit unfortunate. I have friends, my, my wife, my family. Um, I get to see uh, Kavanaugh in court, and he's, he's, he's a very congenial, very uh, pleasant guy, very focused. Uh, and... 
a good part of the American public only remembers that uh, testimony. He was sort of angry and emotional, defending his good name. And uh, I, don't, I don't know how it, uh, that's just the way life is. But it, it, the strange thing about the Supreme Court, you, you're confirmed, and then you go behind almost like closed doors. Nobody sees that person again anymore. They read about him in the papers, and there are pictures of them, and maybe there's a still photo of them, but they don't actually see them. And I see Kavanaugh in the court every day, and he's, he's a very, uh, you know, exceedingly congenial, civil, uh, nice guy, in, uh, like the old Brett Kavanaugh. But I think there's millions of people who've only seen him in that TV appearance might have a different impression We did learn that one justice... Well, and uh, on that note, I think it is worth noting that when he is seated on the court, the other justices go out of their way to welcome him and be open and make public displays of how um, mm. how he is one of them. When he has his formal uh, swearing-in at the White House, they're all there. But we did learn that one um, Supreme Court justice thought that his... Uh, he was very similar to Justice Kennedy, but the Shakespeare references have been replaced with sports references. So. He does have a lot of uh, sports references. And, uh, yeah, but when, when you've had 12 years on the court already, he's, he's, he, I think what you do is go back to the same um, you know, approach in the court, the way you ask questions, the way you write opinions that you've had before. And I think that's... Um, that's the strength of appointing people with a long record. Is you don't have to wonder are they going to su- suddenly mm-hmm. skew off right. in some kind of crazy right. direction. You know, we we know how he's going to be a judge because he's done so for over a decade. Well, tell me who you think some of the uh, heroes and villains of this story are. You've got, I think, some details on both. Any 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 you would like to cite out as uh, heroes of the of the story or uh, and or villains of the story. Oh, we've, we've talked about several people that are really, you know, like Rachel Mitchell is someone we really enjoyed learning more about. One that I think was really impressive uh, to learn about it for me was Leland Kaiser. And this, of course, was Christine Blasey Ford's close friend from high school and one of the other people who was named to have been at the party and the only woman who was said to have been at the party. And what we've learned is that she's someone who, she is a lifelong liberal. She did not want Brett Kavanaugh on the court. Um, and she knew Kavanaugh in high school? Uh, she, she did not. She 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 stated that she did not That's think she right. had ever she met said him. You're, you're, yeah. you report that she didn't actually know, didn't remember knowing him in high school. Correct. Yeah, and she, and in fact, that she remembered that summer very well. It was a very formative summer for her because she's a, a golf, a professional golfer, and this mm-hmm. is when she really got started playing golf. Um, she, when she heard about the, the allegations initially, she was dismayed, going, "Oh, I can't believe you know, this is my close friend, and I, I, I feel horrible that I hadn't realized this <clears> happened to her, and even if she didn't tell me that I didn't notice." You know, a change that I would have picked up on and was racking her brain trying to think of details where she could corroborate it and couldn't come up with any. And we, we tell the story of how she made that first statement saying, I, I simply can't, you know, I, I don't remember this. I can't, I can't verify it. That was interesting because it was something that the, the people who were working on the nomination thought was that was their silver bullet. They, we had already had all of the men she identified at the party say they didn't remember it happening, and then this is the final person who you would have thought would be the witness that she may, maybe would, would remember because it was her friend, and she said she didn't. And that the that Kavanaugh's team thought, this is it, this is going to be great, this is where things are turning around, and when they learned that it got very little media coverage when that when that came out, that was when they felt like, now we're really in trouble because even this isn't breaking through. So let me clarify. Early on, she said, I don't remember this, but I believe 
something like that. I believe I, I Christine think, is telling the truth. Right. And in fact, some of that, the modification of the statement was even the result later of discussions with, with common friends of theirs who said and, and realized that she was she was frustrated because there were people, including Judge Kavanaugh, saying, well, this refutes her testimony. And she said, well, that doesn't really refute it. It just says I don't, I don't remember it. But then people were trying to convince her to shade that more strongly than she felt comfortable with. She said, look, I still don't remember it, even if I don't think this refutes it. I don't remember it. I believe Christine. I don't remember it. So that's her, that is the statement she gives. And then later when the FBI investigation comes about, that's when it gets interesting because she does speak to the FBI um, and, and then twice, in fact, and goes back and, and lets them know about some of, some of the encouragement she was getting to change her statement. And uh, she begins to feel not only that she can't corroborate it, but the more she has the opportunity to really reflect on that summer going, that just, this doesn't actually line up with the kind of event that would have happened at all. She comes to actually lose confidence in the story as she gets time to reflect on it. She never remembers it from the beginning, but I thought that was, you know, that took yeah, a lot so of she courage. She came to believe it did not right. Right. happen. For someone who, who again, uh, for, on a political basis, and then also as a matter of her friends, like you, friend. you want to be able to support your friend, but it, but she also felt a very deep conviction that she had to be 100% truthful on this, and that took a lot of courage. Yeah. Uh, villains? Well, I was just thinking of another hero real quick, which okay. I would say Susan, are fine. Susan Collins, uh, learning more about what she went through, which begins before uh, Brett Kavanaugh is even named as as the nominee. She starts receiving you know, threatening packages in the mail from people who want her to vote against whoever the nominee is, and she shows just an unbelievable amount of discipline, hiring additional staff to help her go through his record. Mm-hmm. Um, she... She had a command of the record that went down to the footnotes. Uh, she's not even on the Judiciary Committee, but she took her, her role very seriously. She did it, by the way, with every nominee that has ever come before her, uh, you know, including Merrick Garland, who never got serious consideration by the Senate. She goes through the record. She takes so much time with him. By all accounts, her meeting with Brett Kavanaugh is the one that is the most um, detailed mm-hmm. and coming uh, that she is the most informed. And then she really starts to get the pressure from opposition groups, and she just refuses to be bullied, considers the case very seriously, and I thought that showed tremendous courage because it also involved, you know, it ends up being that her home is... Uh, a victim of an alleged ricin attack. It wasn't ricin, but it was it was uh, said to, call to be ricin. The weapons of mass destruction. And she has put it on lockdown. Yeah. right. She has neighbors threatening her, and and to just show that courage when it would have been easy to succumb to it, I think is worth noting. Mm-hmm. And she ended up being the crucial senator at the end, right? And not just mm-hmm. her vote, but her speech. I think where she lays out what standards of evidence are, and she shows a very compassionate attitude. Toward, uh, toward the accuser. She also becomes this sort of moral conscience for the Senate in how she, she dislikes certain things that are happening, certain tactics that were deployed by, um, by people who were in the anti-Kavanaugh forces. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned Diane Feinstein doesn't come across looking very good in, in your book or other accounts, right? Because uh, it seems like she should have acted sooner on this... Um, uh, report so that it could have been handled. Yeah, it's 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 very discouraging seeing that. Although it's interesting, we also uncovered a, a um, definite tension between her and her staff. Her staff was, in many cases, pulling her farther to the left than she would have been. I think, as someone who's been in the Senate a long time, mm. 
and wants to be able to work well with others and, the, and knows the other members of the committee and the other senators well, um, she was much more inclined to try to work with them. And we saw that even earlier in the process with the document review where she had come to an agreement, in fact, with Senator Grassley, who was the chairman of the committee, that would have resulted in, in even more documents being released than were already and than the half million that were, that were released. But actually, her, her staff insisted on scuttling that and, and had to walk back this agreement because they had taken the position that basically we will accept nothing less than every single piece of paper that went through the Bush White House. And that also really harmed uh, the Democratic senators and, and Senator Feinstein in the eyes of some of these the swing votes. Right. We detail a scene in Justice on Trial where that tension between Feinstein and her staff, or you know, the Democrats and their staff, just boils over into um, an almost comical situation in the ante room off of the Senate Judiciary Hearing Room, with uh, senators so frustrated with some of the political game playing. You know, and these are professional politicians who do <laughs> political game playing for a living. But they're so frustrated by this particular process that they nearly come to blows as people are shoved in fighting, and uh, and a long summer and and early fall of tension boils over. Mm-hmm. But your notion is that the staff may have had something to do with uh, leaking this name or we getting spoke, out this uh, name. We spoke with people who really did have high regard for Senator Feinstein and had low regard for the staff. So I don't mm-hmm. know if this is, um, you know, obviously there was a limited pool of people who had access to this letter, mm-hmm. and Feinstein was one uh, of that limited pool, and it did get out. And we do know that when she received the letter, she didn't put it through the normal procedure that protects uh, people who are accusing or, or whistleblowing she arranged an attorney uh, with, who was known for high-profile uh, cases. So that is something that she and her staff did, uh, and that's you know, part that of the went story. Directly from them to the press or through them to other Democratic staffers to the press. Her, her lawyers also had access to it, obviously, and so could have right. could have done. I mean, her friends also. So, but but there is a a limited group that that had access to it. So you know, there's only a few potential. So we all sort of agree that the. Um, Ideal process is not to go through all the confirmation uh, hearings and then get ready to vote, and then, and then a major new yeah. development. It is, as you say, I never thought I'd live long enough to see it twice in my lifetime, but it was very similar to the way the Clarence Thomas thing, that Anita Hill uh, uh, revelations came out after the mm-hmm. first round of uh, Thomas hearings. And I covered those first round of Thomas hearings, and nobody remembers that. It's, it's, everybody yeah. remembers... Just the second. The, the, the second. Uh, mm-hmm. You would not think it could happen twice in 30 years, but it, but it has. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much. I, I thought it was great to talk with you. Uh, and uh, the book is Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court. Good luck on the book, and thank you very much. Thank you. Great to be here.